So I'm going to begin this Sunday with a little bit of a Bible school, Sunday school lesson, okay? In the earliest days of the church, before there were structures called churches and, and there was no New Testament, okay? There wasn't even anything called the Old Testament, really. There was the Law and the Prophets. That's what they called the books, the Law and the Prophets. And the first five books that we know of the Bible is called the Pentateuch. And it is also referred to as the Torah, and you're likely familiar with this term because it's still used by the Jewish faith today. The first five books is the Torah. And these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, make the first portion of both books. To expand on that, the Jewish book is called the Tanakh, and it consists of the Torah, which is the law, Nevim, which is the prophets, and Keduvim, which is the writings. And if you were to draw a comparison to the Christian Bible, flip that, you would find... You'd see how this kind of lines up, the Torah, Nevi'im, and the Kedem. Go ahead and flip to the next slide, if you would. And you'd see how this, how this works out. That, that there's a, the Christian Bible, which is on the right, the Old Testament, uh, contains the Pentateuch, the five, first five books, the, po- the historical books, what's called the poetry and wisdom, like Psalms, right, and Proverbs, and then the prophets, which Malachi and, and, and others. Many of these same stories are actually captured in the Muslim book called the Quran. So there's a lot of similarity. Take a look at the slide on the screen. You, you see the names of the books. Go back one more. The names of the book, one more back, sorry. With the, with the, the Jewish Tanakh. And you'll see Ruth, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joshua, Judges. You recognize these, right? right? You, know the, you know these are the stories. Go ahead and flip forward. And if you were to open your Bible to the front cover, you would see the same books in the Bible. Go ahead, one more for if you would. Okay. This slide adds the Quran on the bottom there is comparison. This shows the similarity and overlap of the Old Testament text. And I've used the Catholic Bible to represent Christianity because it includes books that are not a part of the Protestant Bible, but are recognized and this is a hard word to say, deuterocanonical books, okay? These are books you may not be familiar with, but they're called the Apocrypha. And they are additional books that we recognize but are not in the Protestant Bible but are in the Catholic Bible, uh, written by very many of the same people. And uh, so if we're not going to get too deep in that, but I want to show you a couple things because I make this comparison in mind is that there is one God, one God, And as I shared on a Sunday morning a few weeks ago, despite so many things that separate us and become divisive, we're united by the most important thing, and that is one God, one God. Now, Judaism was the faith and teachings lived and shared by Jesus. His disciples and those who followed him were predominantly Jewish. Mary and Joseph were Jews. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and even the Apostle Paul started as a Jew. Go ahead and flip that now. And I share this lesson because it's significant when we look at how these sacred texts were shared. They were written on papyrus and on scrolls, and some of these original texts have survived thousands of years. And perhaps you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls or some of the papyrus samples that find handwritten texts that are almost word for word in Greek or Hebrew, um, what we're finding in the Old Testament today. And, And aside from the formal teachings and reading from the scrolls that they did in synagogues, 
a significant amount of the teaching took place orally, kind of like I do on a Sunday morning, where they read from the scroll and they taught from the scroll, and this is what they heard, and, and this is why the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was significant. And they were found in 1947 in a sealed cave after a millennia, multiple thousands of years, and the texts are true and printed in the Bible that you carry and have access to today. This is one piece of evidence supporting the authenticity of the book contained, the books contained within the modern Bible. And the New Testament contains accounts and letters compiled after the death of many of the authors. And this is certainly true of many of the epistles or letters attributed to the Apostle Paul. Now, during the period of Jesus' life, if you weren't blessed to be able to hear the teachings from Jesus in person, you had to rely on what you were told by those who had been there in person. Likewise, with his death and resurrection, it was the personal account or testament of what they saw, heard, and felt that had credibility. In fact, many of the early groups of Christians only gave credence to the stories and teachings of the apostles themselves. And that makes sense. They were the ones there. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They saw him. Our earliest accounts of this period agree that church relied on the apostles for the proper interpretation of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Tell me what this means, Luke. Tell me what this means, Matthew. What did you see? What did Jesus say? It was those closest to Jesus who the church said most clearly understood the meaning of these sayings. And to these men, the church added Paul, who was Saul, and we know the story of Paul, because he had direct experience with the risen Jesus, and James, the brother of Jesus, who went on to become a leader of the Jerusalem church. This was not only significant to the providence of what was shared, it was also obedience to Jesus' commandment, something that we call the Great Commission. Now I'm going to shift from the history lesson to this morning's message. And the Great Commission, which you're familiar with, can be found in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which is good to remember. It says, Then the eleven disciples, remember we've lost one, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you realize that commandment doesn't just apply to the 11 remaining disciples. In fact, as a Christian, you are counted among the disciples and this instruction applies to you. So I'm going to take this morning's message time to look at a few things. What was Jesus' ministry? Is that ministry complete now? What is our role and the responsibility? And if we have one, how do we do it? And when will this ministry of ours be complete? Now, Jesus, the Christ is the Son of God. He's God incarnate. Fully divine, right? Fully divine and fully human in the integral unity of his person without confusing or separation of his nature. He is fully both, fully both. And as the second part of the Trinity, right? We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the second part of the Trinity, Jesus is the Son of God. He is eternally begotten Son of the Father. And as a divine person, the Son possesses the nature of God, the nature, the characteristics of God that we read about, that we, that we strive to find in ourselves. 
in order to accomplish the mission of redemption, so there's part of his mission was to redeem us, this mission he was entrusted by the Father, he took upon himself our human nature. In his human nature, the divine person of the Son of God suffered and died on the cross in order to save us from what we deserve and to usher us into life with God in union with him through Jesus, through faith. Colossians 2.9 says this, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in the bodily form. He is fully God. Matthew 1, 20, 21 counts it this way. It says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now we have to remember, this is Joseph. I'm talking about Joseph, the son of Jesus, or the father of the biological father of Jesus. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's Jesus' ministry and mission. And I'm going to touch more on this. We're getting actually pretty close to Advent season, hard to believe. We're going to talk a little bit about the roles of Joseph and Mary here in just a couple weeks. But let's jump ahead 30 years now from Jesus' birth. Luke 4, 16, 21 says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, this is Jesus, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Now here's something between the line. If Jesus, the sinless child, son of God, needs to go to church every week, how much more do we, right? Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now again, this is the Tanakh, but it's the same Isaiah we read in our Old Testament. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. So there's some of his mission. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay? Isaiah's prophecy about Isaiah's prophecy about the one who would be coming and what his mission is. And Jesus read this. He says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Jesus' ministry in writing. Now, is that ministry complete? We know he was crucified and dead and buried but risen. So is the work done? John 17, 1 through 26 says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Okay. So I would say that maybe the work was done, the redemption work, the reason he came at least, but the ministry of Jesus Christ continues today because we are still lost. Picking up at verse 17 of John 17, we hear his prayer continue. He says, sanctify them by the truth. He says, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. There he is. There he's casting the vision for the continuation of his ministry. As you sent me in the world, I have sent them in the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, okay? And that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one in them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, part of his mission. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Again, he has cast the vision. He has multiplied his ministers, just like the slide depicts. He has multiplied his ministers. He started with the 12, back to 11, and then they're growing. In fact, in Jesus 9, 37 through 38, I'm sorry, Matthew 9, 37 through 38, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful. The need is great. Jesus had just emphasized to the disciple the need for his mission and commanded them to pray for workers for the harvest. Now his commission instructions gives them to put feet to their prayers. Don't just ask what needs to be done. Don't just pray that something be done. Go do it. Since the needy multitudes of Israel must be reached with the redeeming power of God's love, the disciples were given authority to minister as Jesus had ministered in words and deeds. In fact, in Matthew 10, 40, he assures that if they are received, he has received. Did you know when you are asking someone to hear your message, they're receiving Jesus. He's saying, when they receive you, they are receiving me. Friends, this is still true today. The mission is alive and well and very much needed. So what is our role and responsibility? The mission is to guide people into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's, the, that's what we're supposed to do. Guide people into a relationship, not shove them into a relationship, not coerce them, not guilt them, to guide people into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that they may know his love Enjoy a life abundant, because that's what he wants for all of us, and blessed with an eternity with him, which is what we want for everyone. And that all begins by knowing who he is. You know, in John 11, we find the story of Lazarus. The Bible describes Lazarus as a man that Jesus loved, and his sisters Mary and Martha played an important role in Jesus' teaching on what's important. In fact, the story of Mary and Martha, I remember he visited them in their home, and, and one was you know, listening and worshiping. And the other one was, was running around trying to make everything perfect for him, okay? And it's kind of a fun little study and conversation because some people we know are Mary's and some people we know are Martha's and, and some people, you know, and it's hard to, you know, go tell her to calm down and come listen to me or go tell her to help get the house ready. And Jesus said, this one knows what's important. I digress a little bit. That's this message for another time. But these are the women whose brother Lazarus had died. And they, Jesus had heard that he had, was dying. And, and he intentionally took an extra couple days before he went to see him. Okay? So pick up John 11. We find the story of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And we find that Jesus has returned to the home of Lazarus after an intentional delay. Martha ran and met Jesus on the road as he approached. And she said, listen to this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died that interesting? How many times do we say something like that? We don't think we would we'd confront God or Jesus that way, but God, how did you let that happen? How did I lose my job? Why is this person, you know, no longer with us? Why am I suffering pain? Why, why you know, why? If you'd have just been with me, this wouldn't have happened, right? 
But in verse 25, we find his response. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he asked the important question, do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. That's the message. And we mourn those we've lost. We miss them terribly. But Jesus is saying, look, I got this. Not only do I have this, I've got them. We find a similar question being asked of Peter in Matthew 16, beginning at verse 15. Okay, it says, Peter says, but what about you, Jesus says? Who do you say I am? Because remember, they were, they were arguing about who, who the people were saying Jesus was. And, and Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, right? I know who you are. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by Father in heaven, right? He knew out of faith who this man was. And he says, I tell you that you are Peter. So there's Jesus giving a new name. Peter means rock. And on the rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Friends, we are the church established by Peter. And we're not perfect. Even this man who Jesus says, you are the rock. You've got it right you know, blessed are you. But even this, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times. Oh no, Father, I would never do that. Oh no, I would never do that. And sure enough, he did. And it's okay because Jesus is building church and, and us on some of these, these frailties we have. He knows them and he will use them. But like these people answered, it's not just good enough to know who he is. Our responsibility is to spread the good news of Jesus. The church exists to join Jesus on his mission. We, we partner with Jesus. We don't say, okay, Jesus, we're, we're here. Go do your work. No, we're here, Jesus. We're ready to go do your work. This mission is from everywhere to everywhere and includes absolutely everyone. Everyone. Christians are to be both engaged in missions, and these are the things you think about. Let's send someone over here to be a missionary in this foreign land or, or somewhere else in the United States. But, you know, go, send. That is missions. But we're also told to be missional. Missional. Being missional means giving, a living a purposeful biblical mission. You can be missional without being a missionary. A missional life is one that follows the teaching of Jesus in every way. Now, the Great Commission points us to a mission, right? The Old Testament depicts a clear God-given vision that the nations would come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God, right? It's very centrally focused mission. From the edges, from all nations, people will come. But now Jesus is explaining to them that now his people need to go out and he will go with them. Jesus' earliest followers understood that the Great Commission meant more than simply telling their neighbor about Christ, which is very, very important. The Great Commission includes your neighbor, but, but the context of the Great Commission is much larger. The, in the books of Acts that we were studying during our Sunday morning Bible discussion time, specifically Acts 1.8, points out that the mission is no longer centripetal, right, it's coming in, but centrifugal, right, the, the spending that sends everything out. So rather than bringing the nations up to Jerusalem, the people went out from Jerusalem. And according to scripture, this is what's in Acts, they went out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth as they knew it, anyway. But Jesus also tells us to be a mission to our neighbor. 
You're called to live in a missional way wherever you are. Jesus speaks to his disciples, explaining that he is sending them as his father has sent him. Thus, the Bible teaches everyone to, that everyone is sent to continue Jesus' mission. In fact, we just read this, John 20, 21. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And everyone is called to ministry, right? We read about this in 1 Peter. We're all given gifts to serve others in its various forms. So the question is, isn't if you should carry on Jesus' ministry, but, but where and to whom and how? So how do we do this? Being on mission and being missional need to be integrated into our daily lives. This needs to be a missional church. And I think we've got a good grasp on this. We focus on living in a missional way wherever we are. But remember that God has called us to reach people where the gospel is not as well. And, and it's sometimes hard to think about that. The gospel may not be very far outside of this, this wall. There are people in this community who may not know Jesus. They've heard of him, right? We live in a, in a time in a world where they, where they have, but they may not have that relationship, right? And, and there's a term called unchurched. And a lot of times unchurched means someone who's never gone to church. And it's hard to imagine that, someone who didn't at least get drugged by their aunt or their grandmother as a child. But there's this group of unchurched of people that have, maybe they feel like they paid their dues. I went to church all the way through growing up, and I went to Sunday school and all this, and now I'm an adult, and I love my Sundays, okay? They're unchurched. They're not connected. And, and, and I would love to think that this is the church for everybody. I absolutely love it. But it may not be the church for everybody. But there is a church for everybody. And these people, more importantly, need that relationship. I want to share a story. It was written by Chuck Colson. You may have heard of him. And he says, Passion for the loss takes no higher form than when an individual makes great personal sacrifices to reach his or her own people. Now, Chuck Colson describes such a person. He says, He met a man named Marquise in Philadelphia a couple years ago. So his grandmother came up to him after a public event and said, Mr. Colson, thank you for sending my grandson to Angel Tree Camp last summer. He was saved there, and now he's preaching the gospel to the other kids in our neighborhood. Okay? He says, I talked with Marquis that day, and I was so impressed. There was a sparkle in his eye as he told me what Jesus meant to him and how he was leading others to Christ in the project in which they lived. His grandmother told me if it wasn't for Angel Tree, and this is a mission, uh, a ministry that, that sends kids to youth camp, he would have been caught up in the neighborhood gangs, doomed to follow in his father's footsteps straight to prison. Instead, having come to faith in Christ, he was taking Jesus to the streets, sharing Christ in Camden, New Jersey, one of the toughest inner city neighborhoods in America. He also worked in a church feeding the poor. He was a wonderful Christian witness to everyone he met. Then two weeks ago, we received a phone call. Angel Tree volunteers who had helped lead Marquis to Christ told us the tragic news. While walking his little brother to school, Marquise, his vibrant young evangelist, was shot and killed. At the funeral, our volunteers gave their condolences to Marquise's grandmother and turned to leave. But as they did, she began to shout the to the hundreds of people in attendance. He says, you, she says, you see these people? They are the reason Marquise is in heaven. They took him to camp. He met Jesus there. They are the reason I have hope. Marquise's death is tragic. I don't know whether we will ever be able to control the violence, the death, and the risk in the neighborhoods like this. But I do know that our hope is to take the gospel there 
and with it reach thousands more children. And we can pray that God will raise up more godly leaders like Marquise to help bring others to Christ. And if that happens, we will see cultural changes one kid at a time. I challenge us to be the same. Whether we support these ministries that do youth camps, and a lot of these things we do, this is the ministry of Jesus we're carrying on today. Having compassion for those around us means caring enough to act on their behalf. First, we must care for their most urgent need, whether it's for food, clothing, shelter, or protection. And we're good at this. After all, it's hard for a person to concentrate or have a conversation if he or she is painfully hungry or cold or living in fear. But also, loving means caring for the person's eternal need about whether he or she will go to heaven. That means telling the lost about salvation through Jesus Christ. We must do more than talk about the lost. We must talk to them. And when will this job of ours be complete? Well, when Jesus returns to judge or when everyone is saved. Thanks to the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, everyone has an opportunity to be saved. But in order for everyone to be saved, they must know God and be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our mission. I'm going to wrap it up here. The biography of Jesus isn't just the Bible. Sure, you can read about him and his teachings and what he said. Just like the Bible isn't just the story of Jesus. But where the stories, lessons, commandments are recorded, that's the Bible. But the real biography, the, the best way the story is told is through you. How you live your life is a reflection of the one who created you, the one who saved you, and the one who sustains you. Don't misunderstand me. Reading the Bible for yourself is the best way to know the rate and nature of God, and we should do this every day. To pray and to listen is the best way to understand the will of God, and we should do this every day. And to study the life of Jesus is the best way to show the love of God. Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote this, Don't shine so others can see you. Shine so that through you others can see him. There are some people who have trusted Jesus Christ as a savior, but do little to act on their belief. Others actively follow Christ. They live as true disciples, passionately pursuing the Lord with will in all things they do. These are the ones who take their relationship with Christ seriously. So ask yourself, are you a hearer or are you a follower? A spectator or a participant? A bystander or a disciple? Think about that. And if we as a congregation, if I as a pastor can do something to help you move from one side to the other, I want to do that because that is me carrying out the mission of Jesus Christ through the role I've been given. I'm going to close with this. Scripture says from Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, your Father in heaven. Let's make that our prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, lover of all, controller of all, you see what we do. Lord, you sent your son with a specific purpose, a specific mission to seek and save the lost. He accomplished his work here on earth. It is finished, he said. It is finished. We now have an opportunity to be saved. His work may have been done, but his mission is incomplete because there are still lost among us. 
there are still those who have need for an eternal hope. And Lord, sometimes that's us. Life is tough. So God, as we leave this room, let us have a different view, a different perspective on what it means to be missional in our living. Father, as always, I thank you for this church, this congregation, what it means to me, and I pray what it means to you. We may be small in numbers, but we are mighty in passion for your word. Lord, let us leave here empowered to lead a missional life, reflecting the light that you place within us. And when we do a good job, all glory to you. Amen.